0: Hi listeners, welcome back to Immigrantly, I am your host Sadia Khan. As we all know, the pandemic has changed all of our lives in more ways than one. As of this October, the New York Times reported nearly 45 million cases and almost 725,000 deaths in the United States. The pandemic brought about changes in our jobs, family, friends, finances, and within ourselves. And we have seen whole communities across the nation From big cities to small towns transformed dramatically due to the increase in police brutality, labor strikes across all types of job markets, and a national reckoning around race, voting, policies, careers, and migration. The pandemic gave us a pause to consider all of these factors that come with American life. Here at Immigrantly, we take a closer look at these intersections in identity and explore the issues that spark conversation and enact change. That is why I am so excited to welcome back Tanvi Misra for today's episode. Tanvi is an award-winning independent journalist focused on migration, urban policy, and criminal justice. In one of her most recent articles, Tanvi interviewed four women, from community leaders to activists, to paint a portrait of how migrant communities in New York City push through unjust circumstances. This story not only highlights what the women have done for their communities during the pandemic, but that these women and their communities deserve to take up space in the conversation. The resilience and passion in their activism is constantly at work and has yielded progress that we will get updates about today. When I interviewed Tanvi in February, we discussed the position of migration within American discourse and the multi-layered identity found in immigrant communities Danvi's work has been featured in The Atlantic, Bloomberg City Lab, The Guardian, NPR, BBC, and of course the Fuller Project. Today, Danvi has returned to talk about the process and focus behind this collaborative article that represents the advocacy found in immigrant communities. So let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming, Tanvi. It's a pleasure to see you in person. Finally, we spoke once, right? This was in February. Mm -hmm. And today we are sitting right across from each other. And um, yeah, first I want to congratulate you on your article for the Fuller Project. My team loved your piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I liked about the article was how authentic and real it was, so no bells and whistles attached. (laughs) I feel like as I was reading it, I could tell that the stories that you were telling were as they came. Mm -hmm. There was no embellishment. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just a very honest account Mm -hmm. of all the four women and what they went through. But I want to understand the process. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose the people that you chose? And what was the motivation behind this? How did this article come about?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the goal was to really capture an aspect of these women, you know, and their worlds and sort of their experiences during COVID. And the reason that I thought of this was, you know, I I cover immigration, so I keep getting all of these studies and all of these... Uh, pitches from publicists and things like that. And sometimes you sift through one and it it may not be the story that you're working Mm -hmm. on, but it gives you the seed for another story. And one of the... um, So this sort of came in the form of a a study or it was a, a research paper by... Uh, the Migration Policy Institute, mm. and they'd released something on immigrant women, uh, specifically working class immigrant women, and there, and I've cited it in the story later on. But um, it was looking at unemployment uh, mm-hmm. among immigrant women and how drastic it was during COVID. So that COVID like fall or plummet was um, really stark yeah. and had not been as stark among any you know sort of other subgroups that they'd looked at. So. That sort of gave me, you know, a sense of um, a, a curiosity, I guess. Yeah. I just wanted to know what was happening there. And then also, you know, um, I'm sure you remember, I was seeing all of these stories in the New York Times and elsewhere where, um, you know, these moms were being profiled as like, you know, women who are having to deal with not only their jobs, but also childcare at home.
2: Mm. And
1: so, you know, I'd been reading those stories and I kept thinking where are the immigrant women, especially the ones who don't, you know, who don't have the resources to have uh, a nanny or whatever or or other ways or other support. Um, so I guess those things kind of combined, dovetailed with each other. And that's really how the story mm-hmm. came to be. Um, how did I find these women? So I think I went through some of my sources who were working uh, and organizing these communities mm-hmm. And I came across these women. I, and these are not the only women I interviewed. I interviewed a, a, a few other women as well. And all of their stories are very compelling. Uh-huh. So it wasn't that I was, you know, but I think there was something about these women that um, really just jumped out of the paper for me, um, like, or, or my, or, or the page, you know, it just kind of, as I was transcribing their their audio, like, I just felt um, just mm-hmm. their humanity, right? Yeah. Like, their... Yeah strength and resilience and, and like, you know, they're really funny. Um, <laughs> you know, and they, they they're like sort of zest for life despite the the real hardship that they went through this year.
0: You know, then me there's so much to unpack here. And what really fascinated me about this article was the ground realities of immigrant identity. Because there is so much um fixation on quote unquote, American dream, that myth, right? And how we uphold it through these stories of how people make it here. And we just completely erase the ground realities or the hardships that come along the way. What I'm curious to know, because in your article, it says that when unemployment happened, it happened more like disproportionately more within immigrant communities, immigrant women. Was it same across the board for white-collar professionals versus working-class immigrant women, or was there some differences there? There were definitely
1: differences. So I think, you know, obviously there was job loss across the board, but the the types of jobs that these working-class women tend to do were just much more vulnerable to the kind of economic collapse that happened, right? So nail salon workers, Goma is a nail salon worker, there was no one going in to get their nails done, obviously, because mm-hmm. everyone was scared of COVID. So there's just no jobs, all of those jobs dried up. Um, uh, Veronica is a domestic worker, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and no one was asking for their houses to be cleaned because mm-hmm. they were too scared of COVID. So, you know, those kinds of gigs, it's, it was basically like all of these gigs that, you know, regulars that they had lined up, um, that just started disappearing. And there's no... Um, because these jobs are often you know uh a little bit m- just very prone to the whims of you know that local market but the economy and like mm-hmm. so many other things um that it they were it, that effect was almost immediate for all immediate, of them yeah. yeah i mean i think maybe some of the other you know sectors of the economy people working in other sectors you know white collar jobs etc started feeling that crunch a little mm-hmm. bit later but you know, in March,
0: April, that's that's it was immediate for these women. You know, it's so interesting because it just makes us realize our privilege. You and I are both immigrant women, right? But we come from like the backgrounds that we come from, the way we migrated to America is different. It, it was such an introspective moment for me as I was reading the article. But talking about Veronica, you start your article with her story. What was so special about Veronica and her hunger strike that you decided to open the article with that? Well, one of... Uh, I
1: think I opened the article with her because a, I think I've always just found people who go on hunger strike really fascinating, and yeah. like I'm kind of in awe of them because I'm, <laughs> I can't even stand two minutes of hunger. I'm, I'm it's very, hard, like, right? Easy, like, is I I break very easy that way. Um, so I think it's just people underestimate what it does to your body, just that physical sense of not being able to have any food, and I so I think it takes a great deal of strength. That's one. The second is that I feel like the hunger strike that she and other workers put you know it got something done you know there was a big change not a small change it was a huge you know the the fact that they got so much funding eventually Uh, now of course now we are at a point right now in the year where we know now that that funding was not even enough you know that fund has been completely drained they're asking for more money so um so obviously it was wasn't enough but it was still so much money and they were able to do that and, you know, it just kind of shows you that there's so much power, you know, at that level mm-hmm. too. People don't think that the like one person or two people have power and it often seems like they don't. And mm-hmm. I think in most cases, I would say they don't. <laughs> but but they were able to band together and kind of create it really out mm-hmm. of nothing. And I think that I find that very like awe-inspiring.
0: That's so true. And especially with hunger strike, as you said, it's physical and mental way of resisting something of advocacy of activism i've seen this also be a really powerful tool
1: among uh, south asian you know actually the south asian uh, immigrants who are in detention in the united states often under like they often launch hunger strikes in order to get better treatment in order to get attention in order to get parole if they've been detained indefinitely and as you know this tactic goes back to, you know, the freedom struggle and mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. I've always wondered that co- about that connection because it, I've heard so many times and I've covered so many times this technique being used in detention by South Asian in particular, but not only, but South Asian detainees in particular. So I, I think I was also... F- I've always also been fascinated with that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very powerful tool, obviously, mm-hmm. as we've seen.
0: And it happens a lot in India and Pakistan. Right. It's, it's a very powerful tool, as you said, yeah. uh, for resistance. Right. And and I saw that growing up. You're, you're absolutely right. I didn't even think of that.
1: Yeah. I feel like there's some sort of cultural memory there mm-hmm. or like some sort of, you know, um, like sort of it's almost traditional in a certain sense and somehow it's being carried over. And I think that's fascinating. Um, So to your question, I think what my goal was with this story was just to kind of give space to some, some people who, you know, you might run into, like these are just ordinary people. They're not, you know, um, but they've done extraordinary things even in their everyday. And I think that deserves space. And so I think that was my goal. Like, I just wanted a little, like, it's these are mini portraits, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, of these women. And that's all I really wanted. I wanted to kind of give you a glimpse. Obviously, they're much more than what is on the page. But just give you a sense of who these people were. And, you know, you might run into a Goma or, like, you know, Arlette. And, you know, hopefully people will go, have gone and seen her uh, exhibit and her photographs. Because yeah. she really cares about, you know, like, the her community and wants to really document um, them and she she just is um you know she said so many things in our interview that uh like still have stayed with me you know and so uh, same with goma i feel like she she we we chatted about her her life like you know from the very beginning of when when she came to the u.s um obviously couldn't use all of that but yeah. i got to know her a little bit you know she uh when i went to take her photo um She sent me back with frozen momos. (laughs) You know, she's just (laughs) uh, like these are really just human and interesting ladies. And I'm just very lucky that I got to know them through my work. But like I'm hoping that the readers see who they are you know, just a glimpse or a window of who they are.
0: Absolutely. And we will be talking to Goma and Arlet later in the episode. So we'll find out about the (laughs) progress and stuff. Now, was there something that really surprised you about these women? Because I'm sure there were certain expectations you had going into these interviews or maybe assumptions about women. As a journalist, I'm sure you've interacted with so many people, right? But was there something which really surprised you and you were like what what like could this happen is this real anything Mm -hmm. like that
1: I don't know if there was something that is that um like I don't I don't think there was anything that sensational but I'm always kind of surprised by how how uh, you know certain people open themselves up to me when I like Arlette received me at the ferry station in Staten Island and like Took me around, drove me back. You know, she took we we went and had dinner at a um her favorite uh Thai restaurant. Um, she showed me the park. She told me that Staten Island is the borough of parks. I had never known that. <laughs> I probably would not have known that unless it was for her. But it was really nice of her to take out all that mm-hmm. time and um talk at length about not just what I was talking about, but a lot of other things and and really just, yeah, I mean, same with Goma. Like I feel like those are the two that I spent a lot of time with and so you know I'm just always surprised I don't expect that because I'm a very guarded person myself and so uh, like I tend to be um, you know open myself up only once I'm comfortable with people Ah. and I feel like I really always get surprised when people are not like that and so open and friendly and like just Uh. invite you into their lives and be like oh this is what it is and Goma I just loved the fact that she had a pet pigeon yeah, I uh, saw the pigeon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was so amazing. So when she talked about that, like I was, I was like, okay, I need to come and see this pigeon. Uh-huh. Like, this is amazing. Uh, and obviously she named the pigeon Pari, which is, you know, oh, yeah, angel. Used... Yeah. Uh, so, and when I went to her house, she like introduced me and the pigeon would keep coming. And like, while I was trying to take a photo, keep coming and sitting on my either on my head or on my shoulder so that was pretty funny Um, but she also had all of these photos of herself when she was younger and you know her lipstick was always on point and I just loved like those little details about her life uh, that she was willing to share with me.
0: Before we wrap up this interview, I may be digressing a bit, but since you cover immigration and migration so much, Tanvi, I, as someone who is an immigrant, who talks to a lot of immigrants and second-gen people, I still feel, unfortunately, there is this stigma and taboo attached to immigrant identity in America. Despite the fact that there are 44 million immigrants, Mm -hmm. 18 million people with one parent who's an immigrant... Why is that still happening, especially in America of all the places?
1: Yeah, I think it's because I know that there's this narrative of America being the country of immigrants, Mm. but I think that came a lot later. Actually, originally, it is a it's a pretty xenophobic country.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You
1: know, from the early, like, 18, like, or late 1800s when the first restrictions on immigration came about against, and they were explicitly racist, Hmm. explicitly against Chinese um, laborers who were, you know, coming to work on, in, in the, in the West. And so, that has informed everything that has informed the 1920s you know Mm -hmm. when the quota they put in those quotas and um and then while the 1965 immigration laws like opened up you know America to like the rest of the world some of those things have still stayed I mean there's still a lot of discrimination um it's still like you know even if you are you get your green card or you get your citizenship uh you're you're never american enough and that's yeah. sort of the how they sort of challenge it but it's so smart right if you keep telling someone or keep challenging someone's like identity that way it's no wonder that there are some immigrants who try to be so American that they yeah. <laughs> even alienate other immigrants, you know, other new immigrants. Like they, they keep saying, We're not like them, we're
0: American, we're not like them. You know, there's tendency to self loath in a way. Yeah. It's like, you know, I don't want to be associated with immigrant identity. I have so many friends who were born and raised in Pakistan, India, other parts of the world and they'll be like, We are not immigrants, we are naturalized citizens and I'm like but you're still immigrants those two identities are not mutually exclusive right yeah
1: I don't know I think it's very complex and I think there's yeah you know there's one aspect of it I've always thought of is like it's so hard to immigrate that like once people immigrate they're like oh we did it so we must be special or something you know I'm (laughs) like maybe some people think that way or you know other people think like maybe they had to give up so much to be here that like, they feel like, oh, now we have
0: to commit all the way to huh. something, including all the racism. Like, I don't know. People say that's so true, you <laughs> yeah. know what? Yeah. I asked you this question in February, and I'm going to ask you this question again, sure. if you were to define America. And this is something that I ask my guests. You know this. You were mm-hmm. a guest. um, And since we are in the studio and we are talking about immigration, I want to get your take again. It may have changed from last time. Oh, God. Uh, I
1: probably also was by this last time you would have thought I would have got a better answer this time Uh, I mean I think it's like an idea right maybe that's what I said last time I don't remember but um, it's an idea and there's aspects of it that are illusions Mm. and aspects of it that are you know false and there are aspects of it that are aspirational you know like I think there's an idea of it and I don't think it's true in real life but you know there are people who are trying to make it true and that is i think i mean that's commendable i guess um but i also think like i, I don't love the i would you know i would sim- argue like india is i would huh. define india a similar way maybe so i guess what i'm trying to say is like you know india is a place where there's a lot of different voices a lot of different people and yeah um it's an idea and i think right now the reality on the ground is like a complete opposite of i mean let me be honest the idea was never realized (laughs) you know Uh. it was never like a secular socialist democracy as it says in the indian constitution um but what it currently is is like the (laughs) antithesis of that you know um and I feel like it's a similarly with America's. So I don't think America's exceptional necessarily in any way. Hmm. But um, I do think it is similarly an idea. And, you know, all nations are just ideas, right? It's I just like it. what those ideas are, are different. So. I love
0: it. Tanvi, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank um, you so much you're for You're always having me. welcome to come to Immigrantly. After talking to Tanvi, we decided to include a follow-up with two women included in the article to talk about the progress of sorts. I am so excited to welcome Goma Yonjan and Alit Sipida. Goma, as you already know, is a nail salon worker who migrated to New York more than 15 years ago. She is pushing the federal government for a clear citizenship path for temporary protected status holders like herself. Arlette is a visual artist and a photographer who was born in the United States and grew up in the Dominican Republic. In her exhibit, Essential Immigrant Stories, she captured the sense of loss during the pandemic within her tight-knit Staten Island community. We interviewed them separately. Here are snippets from our very fruitful and insightful conversation. you did photo documentary project, which is so impressive, Arlette. And before we delve into it, I just want to get an idea of how it all started.
3: Sure. So um, I was uh, in the midst of getting hired for my current job. And uh, I, I, my previous job was in higher education at private college. And I've always worked uh, in community engagement. That's uh, my field of preference and I have plenty of experience working with community members. And I was um, applying for this job at La Colmena as its deputy director. And I'm also a visual artist uh, Mm -hmm. by career. So um, I was applying for a local grant with Staten Island Arts, our local council, Arts Council. And um, during that time, we were, you know, six, six months, nine, nine, months into the pandemic, and we were seeing a lot of news coverage, but I didn't see a lot of um, people from the community, people from ah. the people immigrants, right? So I'm like, uh, I felt that there was a need to highlight the experiences and voices of the people from the community, which were not being um, um, highlighted or, or uh, their voices amplified. So I always try to have a, to live a, a, a very wholesome life. In a way that I uh, try to pair my passions with my work, you know, in, a, in America in particular, people compartmentalize their yeah. life, like, you know, work is work and my personal life is my personal life. And, you know, my passions are my passions or hobbies. So like they don't, <laughs> they don't mix. And I'm like, uh, no, I want to be able to integrate my art into my everyday work. And essential immigrant stories came about uh, uh, as a result of trying to merge my work with La Colmena, which works with essential uh, immigrants, with Mm. uh, day laborers, domestic workers, and other low wage um, workers who are of immigrant descent, with my interest in highlighting the voices of the communities through my photography. And so I, I applied for the grant, I got it, and and this grant allowed me to, one, get to know the constituency that we serve much better. Uh, Ah. The the process of interviewing people about their experiences uh, with COVID is a very intimate one. I I asked uh, two questions uh, for all 27 interviewees, so, so I interview them uh, and asked two questions. Uh, what was the biggest challenge that you mm-hmm. had to face? And but, but what was an opportunity that came out of this pandemic? And these two simple, very broad questions genera- generated a whole bunch of different answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, very moving ones, very simple ones, very surprising ones. You'll be shock to to hear and also I try to kind of very have a very varied range of people from children to adults to elderly and everything in between was there some response that was
0: surprising to you or something that really stuck with you like you were like oh my gosh you know I wasn't expecting this
3: Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of stories that were very, very strong. Hmm. Um, I'm going to mention three. Hmm. Uh, one was of a a mother that uh, contracted the virus first, her husband did, then she did. And her biggest fear was to leave her children, uh, and, you know, leave them orphan and
4: Hmm. not
3: being able to be with them to care for them. So that really touched me as a mother, myself, you know that's definitely something that a mother fears all the time not to, oh, be, yeah, to absolutely, be there you know yeah. especially with young children so so that was very moving i cried listening to her because the anguish and desperation was deep mm. and that was really strong and then there was another woman that i interviewed and that one was like devastating she Talk about, like, everything wrong coming at the same time. That happened to her. Oh, no. She's a nurse in an emergency room and actually an operating room. And and because operations were not being done, they all transferred them to to attend COVID patients, right? In in ICU, Mm. intubated and so on. So her mother contracted the virus and ended up in her her emergency room, and she could not save her mother. So yeah, I. I and then not only that, but um, her her dad and her mom were married for fifty five years. So that she had to deal with her father feeling completely lost mm. after losing his lifelong partner. Yeah. So it was. It was really hard to listen to all this and then on top of that on top of that she was getting separated from her husband I mean like I mean gosh how how much that's rough can you you take and she's so strong so that was that was really powerful and she I asked her what was what kept her going and she said my children my children keep Mm. me going so Mm. that was very moving and lastly One story was of my neighbor. I interviewed my neighbor. Huh. And before this project, we, we never really talked. We just said hello, right? Huh. And, but I went and I said hello and I asked her if she, if I could interview her. She said yes. And then they told me about the loss of of their dad, which is uh actually mentioned in the piece that Tambi wrote. And hmm. um And basically, you know, this is a family of immigrants that came from Mexico for a better life. And the father picked up um, cans as as a way of living Hmm. and brought all of his six children to the United States, picking up cans. And he died of COVID. And they were devastated because they were orphaned. Their mother had been killed in Mexico so the father became the only supporter and when he died they all felt that their universe had collapsed and Mm -hmm. and that was so hard to to hear you know and then what she said it was that he was working hard to build a home back in mexico and he did Mm -hmm. then he died so he said what are we going to do no one wants to go back i don't my family's here my children are here you know, he never got to go back home. Hmm. And um, it, it was like we, we come to for this dream, you know, the American dream. And sometimes we just leave the best behind. That that really touched me. It was so hard.
0: That's so true. And I'm so glad that you were able to showcase all these stories because most of these stories are never, never co- covered in mainstream media. These are hidden stories.
3: That's right. That
0: we don't hear, we don't see. We only see them when people like you take initiative and it is tied to funding, right? You mentioned funding and I want to circle back to that. How much of it was probably contingent on you getting funding?
3: I would say all of it. Um, All of it because I would have probably... be curious still, uh, but maybe not really take it as serious as I Mm. did because of this commitment through Mm. the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, It it allowed me to expand the audience, that's for sure. The the funding allowed me to uh, reach and, and produce the photos that Otherwise, probably I wouldn't have done. Probably it would have been just digital. Um, but I'm also making a, a little book, a photo book. Oh, nice. Stories. yes. Um, so so that each participant would would have a book in the story.
0: Ilet has your idea of the quote unquote American Dream? shifted after doing this documentary project has it changed at all
3: you know as a as a child of immigrants mm. i would say that the american dream as we knew it existed it just has become a nightmare mm. uh, and because the mindset i would say of the con of this country towards immigrants has shifted Right. something negative before when my grandma came in the 1950s mm, mm. Um, this this was a place of opportunities truly a place of opportunities for immigrants right now as it's more like um, uh, an obstacle course
0: <laughs> yeah you know what I feel it's like the U.S. has gone through a number of iterations of what it means to be an immigrant. And U.S. has this love-hate relationship with immigrant identity, right? So if we go far back, we know there was Chinese Exclusion Act and there were Japanese internment camps. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, maybe 50s were better and there were more opportunities. And now somehow America is regressing to that discrimination and that hatred towards people who are such an integral part of the American fabric, right? Yes, I am absolutely. an immigrant. You are a child of immigrants. It's crazy how America is still um, trying to understand its American identity and is going through this identity crisis. I'd yeah. if I were to flip that script and ask you to... Tell me one challenge that you faced during COVID and one opportunity. What would that be?
3: Oh wow. That's a good one. Um I think um there were multiple challenges during, during COVID. Uh personally, it was I was shifting careers, literally. Huh. And there was a little bit of um, job insecurity and uncertainty. of I was like looking for a job in the middle of a pandemic. You know how nerve wracking that is? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I can't imagine. You're right.
3: And, yeah. And then the, the, the level of uncertainty was disgusting because you if you didn't hear back or didn't like, get a call back, you didn't know if it was because of the pandemic or because you didn't do good in the interview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was hard, it was hard to figure that out. Um, and then of course, you know, I decided to take a job that had nothing to do with what I was doing before. So that was a, a, a risk in and of itself. So that was hard to start a new job with with things that, I'm, you know, with, with all these limitations. A, uh, on a more personal level you know of course I'm a parent and we were trying to do uh, for, of a teenager it was hard you couldn't be a mother and a teacher and a and, and an employee in your home at the same time it was like I talk about identity crisis we were all having identity crisis there, there was no way to like even pause one role versus the other right yeah I, I kept telling people you know When we went to work, we ordered lunch. If you're home, you got to cook it.
0: And you don't even think about lunch, right? There were incidents where I would not eat until three in the afternoon.
3: Yes. You know, that happens too. Yeah. Yes, because we would book meetings back to back to back to back and not even schedule a bathroom break because we didn't have to quote unquote travel right we forgot about our needs as humans yeah I know I hear you it was it was tough but then in terms of opportunities and this is where when I'm gonna I actually started thinking about myself a little more there was time for reflection Mm
0: -hmm. there was
3: time for risk-taking and there was time this is how I came back to my artwork by the way because I was so focused on work that I neglected my artwork for several years ah. and I said, you know what life is too short that's right. another thing you became very aware of your mortality uh, and I'm going to do things that I really enjoy ah. and that have meaning for me and, and that's how in a way this kind of like motivation to apply for this grant came from Huh. And it has become a fantastic opportunity to meet many new people, to hear stories, to have exhibits, to have doors open. so I would say those, those have been the opportunities that came out of the pandemic for me, you huh. know, just understanding that life is precious and time is limited.
0: Arlette, uh, this was so good and I am so proud of the work that you're doing because we need those stories out we don't see them I am so sick and tired of mainstream media creating narratives about you and I and yeah I'm so glad we are doing it ourselves thank um, you and thank you for doing this this was so good thank you Just for our listeners, you are going to translate for Goma Didi. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is
2: Gurum, and I am the Director of Campaigns and Communications at Adhikar. And I'll be um, serving as an interpreter for Goma Didi today. And also there may be some um, pieces on the, our work and the campaigns that I can also um, answer as well, in addition to the interpretation support.
0: I want to get some updates on your work, uh, which was featured in that article, We Have to Survive. What progress has your organization, Adhikar, uh, made to clear up citizenship for temporary protected status immigrants? And I believe gomadi Didi is part of that advocacy work, right? Yes.
2: Well, it's given a way about tanvi I just mm-hmm. a... तो आर्टिकल that's why we have to do this. We have to do this. We have to this. We At the same time, we have to do this. We have to do this. We have to do this. We have to this. We have to do this. to do this. We have
4: Thank so. you. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much, Tanvi, I'm so glad that you were able to connect to Tanvi. She's such a nice person. I really like
4: her. I'm to to uh, Tanthin camping Malagir as a TPSJ, Amy Cagas Behin Cagas Navago Manjale, Yoda A family TPS works illegal word, legal was Amnesma, taxed in Payo, Atta family, he come, legally come or go no aami, eh, aami legally so went to common color in legal note the
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, um, this campaign for citizenship, you know, I've been involved with for many years with Adhikar, you know, it's a part of a part of it started with TPS, which is temporary Mm -hmm. protected status, We got TPS as Nepalese in 2015. And since then, it was such a breath of relief for us to get TPS before we'd been living undocumented and you know, all of a sudden we felt more comfortable being able to travel and being able to work freely without any stress or any fear. And we then, you know, were able to contribute in a, dif- in a different way to the economy and we paid taxes and and it just really changed our lives to have TPS.
0: So Goma, did you, did you face any challenges within the communities that you organized with while you work on your advocacy Work. Um, are there any challenges, and how do you handle them? Um,
2: just so I'll take it. I vitra. the, ke, um, um, the campaign, citizenship campaign. with it. Camera. Um, ke, uh, just a challenges. kura curar. Aunsa Um, also, just
4: they. you. Asked my camera, a TBS Pagamazi to cover a dance of my anatra. So there is a chance of any capoque of Amicagas no, Nilay to TBS Pagasa, when you like the proud vera so my of a committee no costumed, so cozy, coishitizan, sound, Nilmotagor, and Dorley. When you lay up Gonzan and at this challenge of a TBS Jadi mai le mua bana nama Amerika aku pergi sepersia bayu, eh na pergi sepersia, nails macam kerja itu $100 duit suruh kerja macam ni. A mai le jadi luka boleh ni musang kertas naudaheri, apa tu owner malay kubah kerja itu mai le apa bago, tujuh jenis you know, I think there
2: there there are many challenges that come up when doing this type of work in our community. I think one of the things is that there is a fear among those who don't have papers or even a for us to come forward and share. Um, oh, I have TPS or to, to say that I'm undocumented. And, and I think I also see that there are individuals who are citizens, for example, who say, oh, well, you know, I'm a citizen, so I'm fine. You know, I don't have any responsibility to do anything else. And, mm-hmm. you know, I came, I've been here for 25 years. Um, and, you know, from the very beginning, I worked at a nail salon, I was only earning $30 a day. And you know, I was working in such types of conditions where I was really being working under the pressure of the employer and And, you know, I was in such a situation and working undocumented and, you know, now I'm here and in a lot of ways I see it as my responsibility to be able to say, okay, well, you know, I went through all this and so why not do something right for others and for ourselves um, Now that I'm here
0: uh, Pratha, Pratna, this question is for both of you, for Goma Didi and for you. Have you are you disappointed in current administration's lackluster response to advocacy around immigration status, be it TPS or DACA? Mm-hmm. Um first
2: all, just the Biden just the Biden
4: like I the Yeah, I
2: think for this is interpreting from You know, the Biden administration, when they were campaigning before they won had said that this was something that they would fight for, right? That mm. so was really important. And so what we're seeing is no response on that and it's getting stuck, right? It's getting stuck. Right. And so I think it is very much something that we're keeping an eye on, right? We're noticing that their campaign promise is not being made. Mm. Mm. Um, and I'll just, I mean, I think for myself, like, I think I completely agree with Komediri and You know, I think there are definitely it is a disappointment, but at the same time, it's not the fight isn't over. There are still avenues like the window has not closed yet. And for us to say, I mean, this is this is part of what accountability is. Right. Right. We we didn't mobilize voters or we didn't do all of this work around, um, you know, organizing our communities to say, okay, you know, go ahead and do this. We'll just sit back and, and watch you all do it right it's i think a part of our work is making sure that we hold electeds accountable to the campaign promises that they made and we really organize the communities that they're able to push forward the demands that they've been you know saying for years now
0: hmm. what keeps you motivated Goma, Didi, with all the work that you're doing and pressures of it at times <laughs>
2: Um uh, just so, digerin,
4: dragin, and then, mm-hmm. so here, that, to अब or continue to engage, to a job. अनि हाम्रो लाइसेन्स पास भयो नेल्स the गर्दा खेरि हामीले आफ्टर नेपाली भाषामा चाहिँ लाइसेन्स दिन पाए जान पाए एकदमै प्राउड अब not mm. बोल्ला the past, the past language, so, you know, I think this is a good question and what is
2: the, what is the big thing that brings me motivation to keep coming to Adhika and being engaged, you know, years ago when I was working in a nail salon and I, it was so difficult to get a license um, as someone who didn't speak English and there were so many barriers and I really endured that. And then I got involved in other guys through the campaign for nail salon workers rights in New York and we fought for access to licensing in our own. I even testified, it's we organized and we ran this together, and then we won. We were able to win um, licensing access in Nepali. We were able to win the ability to have a course in Nepali for all of these sisters. Who now they're able to access licensing to become Yale technicians. You know, without the types of challenges that I had to go through. And I think I saw how that change happened, and I was a part of that change, and hmm. I was able to bring that type of change and. That makes me really happy and that also encourages me to know that in every not just in now Salon workers rights, but in every aspect of our work, we can we can bring some type of change, right? If you experience yeah. suffering and you can bring some type of
0: change. I, I love that. So in the end, um I'll request Goma Didi to sing something for us. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no, Bolly, no, Bolly, the bee sang on a boli. Tina, in yeah. a
0: Thank you. I love it. It's so beautiful. You know, it's it's so calming. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for this wonderful interview. Tanwi's article came from a collaboration with three news publications. The Fuller Project, The City, and Documented. Documented is a nonprofit news site covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. The Fuller Project is a nonprofit newsroom dedicated to groundbreaking journalism that focuses on women's perspectives to give readers the full story, all to raise awareness, expose injustice, and push for accountability. The City is a nonprofit, nonpartisan non-partisan digital news platform that commits to hard-hitting reporting about New York and its boroughs to better inform people. Their mission is to reconnect New Yorkers to local news, dig into their concerns, and set the agenda of what drives public conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Immigrantly. Our team extends our gratitude to the Fuller Project and the city for collaborating with us and to our special guests, Tanvi, Goma and Arlette. You can find Tanvi's article on fullerproject.org and connect with her on Twitter at Tanvi M. For more Immigrantly, follow us on Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at Immigrantly_pod. And of course, tune in next Tuesday for a new episode wherever you listen to your podcasts.